thank you for the day. We thank you for just the sunshine we have this morning in such a dark time. And, and yet, Father, we're coming into a season in which people's awareness seems to be just that much more. We know, Lord, it's not the, the birth of our, our Lord on that day. And we know that the world gets so many things wrong. But, Father, it does not take away from the fact that in you we got the freedom to worship freedom to, to share your story with any and, and all opportunities. Help us to make the most of the day that you give us. Help us to turn down to your word that we might feed on it. Help us to put aside what sin in that, to keep short account with you, Lord, that without any hindrance, Father, we lift it to your voice. We ask you to bless the teacher, bless the word as it goes out. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> so, last time, which was a couple of weeks ago, so it's like I had to remember what we'd actually covered. Did we actually cover anything in chapters 15 through 20? Did we actually get into chapter 15 and read anything? I, I, I see think so. I, I think you had no. good intentions, but I don't think you made it. Right. That's that's what I thought. Um, we were here last week, so we don't know. No, he wasn't well, either. I wasn't here last week either. Yeah. So this is this is the, the section that we're looking at, which is chapter 15 through chapter 20. It's a very large section to, to take on in a single teaching, which is why it's taken me three weeks just to get to the text. Um, because we've been trying to uh, present a picture of what, uh, there we go, what sin and rebellion looks like. And so kind of my, my uh, view of this section of 2 Samuel, it's about rebellion. And it's about uh, loyalty. And uh, rebellion being the outworking of sin and loyalty and faithfulness being a response in the presence of rebellion. So sin is all around us. How do we respond in the presence of sin? So this is an outline kind of of how I've been taking this passage through, where you have the outbreak of rebellion, David being the, the rightful king uh, on the run. Then there's uh, a clash of philosophies, uh, a clash of counselors, uh, a clash of the, the two worldviews, and then a clash of the armies, which becomes very significant because what happens in the course of this rebellion is it actually plants the seeds for um, the division of a, a unified uh, Israel, all of the tribes of, of Jacob, and that uh, this continues on into the future, even though David brings it back in and has a, a unified kingdom under his rule and Solomon's rule, the seeds that are planted in the course of this rebellion actually persist and don't end uh, until the Assyrians wipe out the northern kingdom and the Babylonians take uh, the remnants of Judah off. So we see that this is a very significant clash here that occurs and the, the, pre, the working up to that. Uh, and then we see David's return as the rightful king, and finally we see that rebellion crushed in his, on his watch, but we don't see it fully exterminated, and that's what I think we need to understand 
is that what this rebellion is about is it's about the outworking of sin. And that's why we spent some time looking at the nature of sin. The psalm that we would look at to open our study this morning, the same one that I used last time, I apologize I'm not more creative this morning, but if you take a look at Psalm 3, this is uh, a prayer of David that is trust in the Lord. He's expressing his trust in God and that God is truly faithful and has a plan in the presence of this rebellion going on. Uh, as Absalom, his son, is rebelling and he's having to flee. Would somebody like to read Psalm 3 for us? O oh Lord, how many are my foes, how many rise up against me. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, O oh Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down in sleep, I wake again, because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O oh Lord, deliver me, O oh my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Amen. May your blessing be on your people. <clears throat> so, as we move through the story of David, we saw David's uh, calling that he was anointed by God that it took him a long time to get through God's university to develop the character necessary to lead God's people. And then as he uh, performed in that role as the leader of God's people, we saw him um, do a good job. And then something happened. He got complacent, maybe. He um, allowed temptation to enter in. And as a result of temptation, he sinned. So, I'll ask you a question. Is temptation bad? No. Nope. Temptation isn't bad. Take you to uh, <clears throat> the second Adam, Jesus. If we look in Matthew chapter 4, it talks about the temptation that Jesus confronted. <clears throat> because we're going to see, <coughs> excuse me, we're going to see part of the way that the enemy attacks us through temptation. And I'll go ahead and, and read this uh, through uh, verse 11. Where are you? I'm in chapter 4 of Matthew. <laughs> I'm going to read chapter 4, Matthew, through verse 11. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord God to the test. Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. You see the same account in Luke. One of one of the things I would point out in this, how this is related to our passage in 2 Samuel, is you see the areas that, that uh, Satan will tempt us with. So Jesus had been out in the desert for 40 days, and it says he was hungry. Well, that's pretty good. I mean, sometimes I go 40 minutes and I'm hungry. <laughs> 40 days in the desert, fasting and praying, praying dedicating himself uh, in prayer to his father and in pursuit of his father. And he comes at the end of 40 days and he's hungry. Is that a legitimate hunger? Yes. He's legitimately hungry. Does he legitimately need food? It's a a necessity. His body needs that. And in that moment of need, the temptation comes. And the tempter says, if you're really the son of God, you have the power to command that these stones become bread. Now, it's a legitimate need, and Jesus could, by the authority that God has given him, command those stones, and they would become bread. So, this is a a temptation of what Jesus already possesses, in a way, right, to meet his need. So, what does Jesus respond He says, man shall not live on bread alone. In other words, it's not the most important thing. But on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So what he's saying is is that it's in God's time that these legitimate needs will be met. It's not that they're illegitimate needs. And it's not that I don't have the power to change that and cause my plan to occur right now. But I need to wait on God's time. That's what he says. Yes, sir? I always think of when I'm thinking of this temptation issue um, of the verse, and I'm not going to be able to tell you the right word, but some of you are here, so you know. But that verse that says that uh, you won't tempt this beyond. First Corinthians 10 12. Where is that? First Corinthians uh, chapter 10.13. So, um, I mean, everybody deals with temptation. And it seems like the, the more you're spiritually active, the more temptation, you know, the more the enemy will come after you. I, uh, yeah. I think you have to, uh, at least for me, I have to kind of hold on to my heart and say, okay, Lord, <laughs> You know that I don't want to do this. Right. Um, and so please provide a way of escape. And I've had to use that at least yes. in my life. 
And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's actually taking the way of escape. Right? And that in the temptation, the right thing to do is to trust God. And that's what he does. He says, it's more important to trust God and his word and his timing than it is for me to take control of my destiny. For me to assert the throne of God. For me to, in my temptation turn against what God has said is good and true to turn what I claim is good and true and in that rebel against God. So what you see is a temptation to rebel. And what Jesus says is, no, I'm not going to rebel. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to wait on Him. And the same thing is true in the second uh, temptation. So uh, the devil takes... uh, takes him to a high pinnacle in the temple. And he tempts him about another area of need. We have a need for being secure. Right? Um, God did not make us with wings. Uh, He made us with feet to walk on the ground. Now, some of us tempt that by jumping out of airplanes and doing things like that (laughs) with, uh, with wings strapped to our back. But nonetheless... We have a legitimate need to be protected by God, just like we have a legitimate need to be provided for by God. And in this, he takes him, he says, Now, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command His angels concerning you. And a lot of times people make a point that Satan, in temptation, sometimes will quote scripture on us. Right? He's stating the truth, but he's misstating the truth about what we know to be true about God, that he will not leave us and forsake us, right? So when we read the third psalm here, um, it ends in salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. It's a statement of David and his faith in the presence of his enemies that God is going to deliver him, that that's God's plan. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God doesn't need to be tested. He's faithful. Right? So again, in temptation, legitimate need, uh, legitimate power, because the the devil's saying, you got the power. Remember? If God gives you the authority, he's going to give you the power to, to, uh, to act on that authority. And Jesus says, yeah, but it's in God's time according to God's purpose. I'm not going to test him. And finally, he, he goes, uh, Satan takes him, he, and he takes him to the, the high mountain, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says, all these things I'll give to you if you fall down and worship me. Now, who's the rightful heir? Christ. Yeah. So, what is Satan tempting him with? Pardon? Something he's not getting anyways. Right, but when he becomes uh, the ruler over the earth, that hasn't fully happened yet. Right? So even though we know it's going to happen, because it's in God's word, and Jesus has said, if it's in God's word, it's sure. It hasn't happened yet. So the devil is tempting him with saying, sure enough, 
this is this is rightfully yours, but I have it now. You want it now? Do you want it in your time? Do you want it for your glory? And Christ says no. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Right? So this is what happens when legitimate needs are there and legitimate rights are there. God given. But it's not in God's time according to God's plan. Temptation comes. And the response to that can be one of two things. Rebellion or submission in faith. That's what we're going to see as we move through this large passage. We're going to see how sin entered in. And one thing I can say about sin, and I made a little note here, uh, unchecked sin becomes more extensive and more intensive. And that's what we've been looking at. You know, I gave the uh, analogy of an atomic weapon being uh, discharged. And that there's an immediate impact at ground zero, but it doesn't stop there. It goes out, and it continues going out, and it goes up, and it continues going up, and it'll eventually cover the whole earth with the effect of uh, an atomic bomb. You know, if you know what they did with the above-ground tests back in the, the 50s, you know that there was fallout that went around the globe, and they actually tracked that, right? That was part of what they did. That's the way sin works that it becomes more extensive and more intensive. And the way that that happens is by changing the way that we think. We think that we have a legitimate need and we need it now. Right? So we're coming into the season of now. Uh, and we want to look at what happened with Absalom and what happened with David. Because who was Absalom? We went through the the king's sons, two weeks ago. Who was Absalom? He was the eldest. Pardon? Wasn't he the eldest son? He was, he was the uh, eldest in line to the throne because of, his, because of <coughs> him committing murder. Yeah, he bumped oh, he off the first in line. He wiped out his opposition. Yes. So what we see is that Absalom, and, and he's a really crafty guy, right? Um, and so you see that this sin in his heart isn't something that's impulsive. It's actually very intentional. He works at things for a long time. It took him two years to set up the right scenario where he could bring in Amnon and uh, kill Amnon in the presence of all of the other sons so that they would know who was the the most powerful among the sons. Who was going to make the grab for the throne? It was very intentional on his part. And we, we found out through the intrigue that happened that uh, Absalom was brought back into the family. That this was not dealt with by David. The sin was not dealt with, so it starts becoming more extensive. So we read about... Um, let's, let's go ahead and read uh, chapter... 15 and 16, at least 16 through verse 14. Somebody want to read? Uh, that's a long section, so that'd be a good reader. Yeah. 
Well, one person read the whole thing? Uh, yeah, because that way we have one translation. Okay. I mean, like when we do a smaller Bible study, we can read around, but in a large group, it's good to have one translation. So if somebody could read chapter 15, all of it, and then chapter 16 through verse 14. I can do it if they can hear me. Okay. After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such and such, a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, <clears throat> oh that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me. Then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came to pass, after forty years, that Absalom said to the king, Please, let me go to Hebron and pay the, pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with, Abs with Absalom went two hundred men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city, from the Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Let's go ahead and stop there. I guess I can't read through the whole thing. <laughs> let's, uh, let's take a look at what's happening here. Because this is where the rebellion is breaking out. So up to this point, it's been in a man's heart. And he's been uh, staging this for a while. And this man is Absalom. So what does Absalom do? Where does he start? So rebellion is acting out of sin. So I'm saying that the sin has already occurred in his heart. And now it's going to become manifest in his behavior. What does he do? He does three things here. Well, he, he, makes, he, he endears himself to the people, slowly but surely. His, his goal is to steal the hearts of the men of Israel. He wants to not just have the throne, but he wants to have the kingdom. He doesn't just want to displace his father. He wants to have uh, the loyal followers that go with his father. He wants to steal hearts 
if he didn't do that, he would have a pretty hard time unseating his father if he didn't have the support of the people. Right. It's he has hard to, to get have a that kingdom first. If you're one guy, right? Right. So he wants he wants the whole thing. And he knows that the key to that is the heart. Interesting. So the enemy that wants to rebel against God is going to want to steal the hearts of God's people. You got to remember, there's a lot of intention here on Absalom's part. And he does three things to steal the hearts of the people. The first thing he does is he, uh, he gets a bunch of chariots and horses and 50 men. What's that about? A show of, of strength, authority, I suppose. Mr. Paul. Publicity. It's publicity? A, it's publicity. It's the equivalent of getting on all of the talking head shows where you can go and let everybody know that you're wonderful and your ideas are wonderful. If we just get rid of brothers in here now, replace them with me. Right. Know, what the, the question is, what is he publicizing? I agree, it's publicity. It's in your face. It's it's all the talking heads. What is he publicizing? He's strong. He's publicizing that he is a king. He may not be the king, but he is a king. Because this is what kings do. They get chariots. They have the horses, the men go out in front of them, all the talking heads. Um, he's going to win the hearts, not through being the rightful king, but through deception. Right? So when we hear all those talking heads, sometimes we call it spin. And they even have a place in the White House they call the spin room. And, and, and it's about, sometimes spin is good because... You know, there are things you don't want people to freak out about. But a lot of times it's not so good. It's about creating a false illusion. It's about deception. Right? So the first thing he does is he deceives the people through publicity. And he's saying, there is a king, by the way, and I happen to be in the chariot. What's the second thing he does? Well, stopping everybody comes to the city gate to look for justice. And he's like, oh, I sympathize with you. There's nobody here to listen to you, but if I was in charge, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, modern day phrases, I feel your pain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so people have legitimate needs. People have legitimate needs, and they're coming to the legitimate king. And sometimes the legitimate king, the answer is wait. And if you got that legitimate need, man, you don't want to hear the answer. Just wait, or get in line, um, or it's not the most important thing for the benefit of the people right now. Uh, you don't want to hear that, but you do want to hear that it's important, that it's a legitimate need, and you want someone that has the power of the judge. What is one of the roles of the king? To be a judge over the people. The people would bring their case to the king. And the king would make a judgment, and that judgment would be right in the kingdom. Regardless of whether we would understand it as right according to the law of the land, if the good king rules, his judgment is true and just and good. Right? 
And what Absalom is doing is he's saying, oh, by the way, there is a king, and guess what? This king has the power of the gavel. He has the, he has the power of judgment. If I'm your judge, I have this power to do this. Let's see, after 40 years? It's four years. Four years. Four years. Four years. Four years. Yeah. So, so, so forty years. Pardon? I, I, I'm, There's a note on the four versus forty. There's some Bible translations say four. Some say it said forty. Uh, yeah, there are all sorts of interesting things about numbers. Yeah, um, it's very difficult to distinguish numbers. Exactly in Hebrew script, and so uh, there's there's sometimes uh, scribal errors around numbers or interpretation differences around numbers, and a lot of times. So when we're making interpretive judgments, um, we will say, well, obviously there's uh, a use of hyperbolic language here, hyperbole, where it's being exaggerated for the point. You know, it's not exact in a scientific sense. Um, and then there are other instances where there are scribal errors that are significant. Obviously, 40 years couldn't have elapsed here because David only reigned 40 years. And if Absalom would have kept his, kept his patience, he would have been in the throne, right? Just through succession, unless God chose somebody else. So we understand from this context, well, it can't be 40, so it's a scribal error. Um, it's four. But what you see in that four years is that this is an incredible intent on the part of Absalom. He is he is really a clever guy. Yes, sir. Uh, David allow it to continue? It's a, a good question. We know that uh, David had some problems with right that, um, and maybe it was guilt about his own failure, right? And I think that this happens. Parents in the room take note. We all fail, and what's important is what we do at the time that the Holy Spirit speaks to our heart and says, you know, you just misused your power, and you sinned. And what you need to do is you need to surrender that to God. You need to repent. What do we do at the point of repentance? Do we continue to own our sin or do we give it to Christ? Well, a lot of times we continue to own our sin. And that follows us in guilt. And it follows us in shame. What did Christ die for? For our guilt and for our shame. Not only for what we did, but for who we were, right? So when sin entered into our hearts, see the difference between guilt and shame is that guilt is, is a, a negative feeling about what you did. Shame is a negative feeling about who you are, right? So when it talks about Christ coming to uh, die for our guilt and our shame, to, to deliver us from that, he's talking about not just dying for our sin, but dying to change who we are 
that that sin actually changed our hearts. We need a new heart. We need to be born again, right? So a lot of times parents, in guilt and shame, don't give that over to Christ. So David's still learning, right? So maybe his bad parenting was a result of guilt and shame over Bathsheba and other things. Or it might have been something else. Yes, sir? Too often, giving it over to Christ is always seen as a passive way of doing it. And I've heard this taught where David knew from Nathan that there was going to be punishment there, and this is included. Right. And you have people who sit here and say, well, no, this is David letting God do what God's going to do. Say, how many times do you hear people sit there and say, oh, Lord, I, I pray for my son, I, I pray for this, and, and just let it go. And they do it in such a passive way. But what you're pointing out is, no, this is sin compiling. Right. What we, we have a command. Uh, when I, my kids leave my house, or when I finish a phone conversation with them, uh, or we in any way part, I always have this uh, saying that we do, and it developed over the years, family tradition. It's do good, be brave, have fun, be kind. And uh, we tack some things onto that to make it more memorable. But essentially, this is a biblical principle, but I wanted to instill in my children. The very first thing that you need to do when you walk out the door is to seek good, to do good. The second thing you need to do is you need to have the courage to do that in the face of everything in the world telling you that that's not what you should do. And the third thing that you should do is you should do that with joy. That you should recognize that this is what the Lord has given you, called you to. And the fourth thing is, is that you need to do it with incredible kindness. You need to have the heart of God towards his people. Right? So I always give them this statement. So my, uh, my statement about David's behavior was, would be that he always needs to do good first. He always needs to do the right thing. And doing the right thing would have been to as he's hearing these rumors about Absalom, pulled Absalom in and said, Bud, what are you up to? This isn't the way that the king should behave. His wife Abigail had the courage to do that. And David heard and respond. But in this case, David didn't pull him in. So David's obviously carrying something that's preventing him from, from doing good first. And I would not say that this is uh, characteristic of all of his behavior in his life. Because he does do some things really good. And we're going to see that as he's retreating. He actually puts God first. But in this one area, he seems to fail pretty quickly. <coughs> yes, sir? You would seem that most of David's failures of this kind all go back to Bathsheba. Because right. he, he doesn't feel, or doesn't seem to feel, he has any moral authority. Because, you know, right. the, I went back and was adding up the years, and from the time that Amnon raped his sister Tamar, it's 11 years now. Mm -hmm. And Absalom has had a grievance, you know, one against his brother for attacking his sister, and then against the king for not doing anything about his brother. I mean, it, it, this is something he's been working on for a long time. Yes, that, that's my point. He's been working at it for a long time. And when you say that David may not feel that he has moral authority, guess what? 
we all have uh, a moral command from God. And he's written that in our hearts, it says, in various parts of the Bible. And that means that what David was doing, if he didn't feel that he had a moral authority to tell his son, hey, that sexual sin is wrong, then David was not giving that sin of his own over to God fully. It's not that David didn't do it in part, because we see that that is his heart, uh, broken and contrite heart, when he comes before the Lord in Psalm 51. But my statement would be that um, David must have been holding on to something because he did have the moral authority to say, this is not right. And I know that because God's word says it. And regardless of our past failures, we have a moral obligation, a command from God, to speak that which is true and that which is right. And David, for whatever reason, and my suggestion is, is that maybe he was holding on to his own sin, his own guilt and shame, and not fully giving God uh, play in this area <coughs> to his family. Um, and you're right, Absalom had a long time to plan, and David would be pretty ignorant if he didn't see some of this going on. Okay, so now I'm a little bit torn. <laughs> uh -oh. so first, first I would say, well, okay, but David's a, a bad father. He's not a good father, and I guess I still say that. And I don't want you to listen to a couple of young men over there in that
Now, I run into this in my own family, and it's hard. I, and sometimes I fail at that. But if I fail, if I if I fail my whole life, well, then I failed. If I succeed once, maybe that's that's being obedient enough that I was able to get it in once. You know. <coughs> None of us are perfect, and some probably less than others. But with your in, in teaching your children, if you're working out of the source of what's right, um, give them the pattern to aim for. I mean, like nobody's a Michael Jordan, but if they put that up there and work toward it, they'd be a lot better than they would be otherwise. That's and the right. same if if this is that focus. And we, we know and understand it, what we should do, and that's our focus, and we're working toward that. Uh, chances are you could have your kids come out being better than you. And, but, and that should be a good goal to have. Yeah. What I would say here is that you see a contrast. Of, okay, we're looking at David's life and we're saying, man, if the guy would have just smacked his kid, he'd be a whole lot better off. You know? uh, Absalom needed his ears boxed, no question. That brings one other thought to mind. Now, there's some place in the New Testament where it talks about praying for others. Mm-hmm. But just to pray is not adequate. If you just right. pray for somebody and go on, you haven't really helped them. But if you give them food or a little bit of something of what they need and you be part of that help, then you've accomplished part of that prayer. And that's and that's and right. that principle is true with all of this that we're... Right talking about prayer alone by itself it doesn't always necessarily the answer that's right if we were studying James this would be the point of James that it's not enough to just have your heart right that that should be played out in the way that you live there has to be action with that's right we should have compassion uh, and that's the in my words to my kids the kindness the loving kindness of God to act that way. That doesn't mean that we're perfect. And so I would say that David in his leadership within his family had some areas for improvement. And that the result of that, because this sin was there, it only added gasoline to the fire. It gave Absalom opportunity. Now, if David would have corrected Absalom right away, the same thing may have happened. We don't know. And the lesson here is not that if David would have done this, this would have been different. The lesson here is this is what sin looks like, and this is how it plays out in rebellion, and this is an appropriate response in the face of rebellion. What does a submitted, contrite, broken heart look like in strong leadership? That's what we're going to see. Because remember, God's given us a picture here of uh, not only the, the... good king, not that we would call David a good king, but he's a forerunner of one who is good and just, but also the appropriate response of humans that have delegated authority by God, how they're going to respond to the world around them and to the sin around them. So this is an important lessons here. And so what we see is that Absalom did three things. He claimed royalty, he claimed he was a king, he assumed the role of a judge, which is uh, a responsibility of a king, and then he received homage. 
that those that bowed down to him, he didn't say, no, 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 I'm doing this for your good. Uh, rather, he said, yep, kiss the ring. so you see that there was a lot broken in Absalom he started this rebellion for the sole purpose of stealing the hearts of the men of Israel and I would say that there is an enemy that does these very same things that his desire is to steal the hearts of the people of God So we need to pay attention to that. So what happened was Absalom was setting up this this whole deal and he goes to uh, Hebron because where did David start his his kingship? In Hebron. Hebron. They may have been a little ticked off when they they moved the capital from Hebron to Jerusalem. Well, who's he trying to appeal to? So you're the political strategist, right? And you're thinking, I'm going to take the kingdom, and I'm going to do it in a day, but it takes me many years to set it up. How am I going to do it? First, I'm going to start edging away at uh, the power base, so to speak, of the, the current administration. And so we know that it was a tenuous uh, unity at best, that there was a a rebellion between the north and the south from the very beginning. But that David, when he down here moved, uh, I may not be far in the south, I'm not, uh, moved down here from Hebron's right there just above the bottom line. Uh, there's no, Ziklag down here. Oh, Ziklag. Here's Hebron. Yeah, okay. Uh, so Ziklag down here, when David moved in to become king, he brought certain people groups with him that he had protected and provided for and served. And he said, let me continue to, to shelter you. And he brought them in and he set up his kingdom uh, initially as the called and anointed king in Hebron. And the reason why is because that was his, those were his folks. He was from Judah. And so, now he, to unify the nation, remember what David did, he said, let's put the center of worship of God, which is the heart of our people, in the center of the nation. Jerusalem was the the place where the north and the south came together, where they met. David took his kingdom out of Judah and actually put the throne in Benjamin. That's what Jerusalem represents. And Benjamin was part of the northern kingdom. So, if you're going to try and usurp this throne and take the whole of Israel, first you take the power base in Judah. So, Absalom says, hey, I'm going to go to Judah. Is that okay? Or I'm going to go to Hebron. Is that okay? And his dad says, well, sure. You're, you know, a Judahite, and that's a good place to go. we got family in Hebron, and let's, you know, go hang out there and do your vow. And uh, so David, you would think, well, he's totally unaware. He should have known that Absalom was up to something. Right? Maybe he did. Did he really need his father's permission to go there? Uh, Why did he ask him in the first place? Why didn't he just haul up and go down there? Well, because uh, being uh, in line to the throne, he would have been in close council uh, or close quarters 
with his father, so his father would have known where he was. It's like, you want to know where the prince is at any point in time. I think it would be something like, uh, in our own system, uh, the vice president is the next in line, as it were, to, to be president, and if you don't let the vice president simply head off into the middle of nowhere, with nobody knowing where he is, what he's doing, where she is, what she's doing. They've got to, we have, we have to know where they are. Right. Because if there, if some problem arises, we need them right now. Right. And, and that, that's absolutely correct. That's what I mean by close quarters. Uh, also, Absalom would have wanted to do as much, because remember this guy's smart and crafty and doing all this intrigue. He would have wanted to disarm his father as much as possible. He's making a grab. He wants to pretend that he's a good guy, right? And that he's going here to uh, fulfill a vow. And it just so happens that he brings 200 innocent people. So these guys don't know what's going on. So if David happens to interrogate him and say, why are you going with Absalom? What's this about? They'd say, we're just going because Absalom's our bud and, and uh, we want to support him in doing this vow. And they don't know. And so he gets down here to Hebron, and he has this, this plan that uh, as soon as the trumpet sounds, they'll say Absalom is king. And then after that, or uh, in conjunction with that, he brings in Ahithophel. Who's Ahithophel? That was Jesus' grandfather. David's counselor. David's counselor. Mm -hmm. So he's uh, David's counselor. He happens to be Bathsheba's grandfather. And uh, it turns out that this guy is pretty wise. He gives what would appear to be the counsel of God. And when Absalom makes his play, what do you suppose the very first advice that, that the counselor gives to Absalom? <coughs> we read on, um, we would find out. So this is probably a, a good time to read on. Uh, even though we're at the end, so I'm not gonna, I'm not going to blow the story for you. Uh, maybe you could go ahead and pick up where you were reading. And I realize we're at the end, and so what we're going to do is we're setting the stage for next week. You want me to read how far? Um, read from verse 13 through. Just, just go ahead and read through the end of 15 for right now. <clears throat> now a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, We are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Then the king went out with all his household after him. But the king left ten women, concubines, to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Then all his servants passed before him and all the... Carathites, all the Pelethites, and all the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath, 
passed before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, Why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today since I since I go not <clears throat> I know not where? Return and make your brethren and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. But Atai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. So David said to Ittai, Go and cross over. Then Ittai the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over. And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron. And all the people <coughs> crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. There was Zadok also, and all the Levites with him bearing the ark of the covenant of God, and they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok, the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you, Ahamaz your son, and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and went barefoot, and all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God, there was Hushai the archite coming to meet him and his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, then you will become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously. So I will now also be your servant. Then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. And do you not have Zadok and Abiathar the priest with you there? Therefore it will be that the, whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. Indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Ahamaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. So 
uh, he set up his spies. He, he set up his spies. He found out who was loyal. I'm way over on time. Um, basically, Absalom's coming this way. David's going this way uh, on the run. And it's a very close running match here. And uh, David leaves his spies and his concubines. And the advice that you'll find from Ahithophel is, go ahead and sleep with the concubines. He tells that to Absalom because that will um, cinch his reign as king and it will make David uh, odious in the sight of the people. So uh, let's go ahead and, and close here. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot there, and we'll cover it next week. Um, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that we could come and study your word. We thank you that you packed so much in for us to learn from um, and to change our hearts. And Lord, we ask that, that you would impact our hearts, that you would help us to see the good and the right, and that you would challenge us to do that, and that you would strengthen us and give us the courage to stand for you in this world. Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you for your provision for us in a very challenging time. We thank you for your protection for us. We thank you for your service to us in so many different ways, Lord, most of which we don't even know. But we thank you in advance for that which you'll reveal to us in the end. Lord, we uh, ask that as we go from here that you would bless Bob in his, uh, his sermon this morning, that you would... Uh, bless this church body as we reach out to the community around us at the time of Christmas here, and uh, Lord, that you would protect us and keep us until next week. We thank you for this, Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.